Matthew 5, uh, verses 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for, they, for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the very word of God. Well, we introduced last week uh, the Sermon on the Mount, which we're going to be studying together for the next couple of months. And the Sermon on the Mount begins with these 12 verses, traditionally known as the Beatitudes. I'm guessing that's not a word you've used in the last week, probably. Uh, The word Beatitude comes to us from the Latin translation of the Greek word which opens each verse from verses 3 through 11. It's the reason that we uh, call them the Beatitudes. It's just the Latin word that translates the first word here that most of our versions have as blessed. It's this word at the beginning of each of these verses that demonstrates the unity of this section. What we have here in the Beatitudes are these nine Blessed are statements, which signal to us what Jesus is up to in the Sermon on the Mount. What we find throughout the sermon and introduced to us here in this passage is that Jesus has come to bring redemption. He's come to complete the redemption of the world. And it is the redemption of Jesus, the redemption that Jesus has come to complete, which guarantees the restoration of our humanity and our rightful enjoyment of God's world. The redemption that Jesus has come to complete guarantees the restoration of our humanity and our rightful enjoyment of God's world. Now, in order for us to begin to understand that and see it, we look at these 12 verses this morning and notice first the meaning of the word blessed in the Beatitudes, the way that we should read the Beatitudes, and then lastly, the treasures that are found in it. Or perhaps we should say it this way. First, we need to talk about how we translate the Beatitudes, second, how we read it, and then lastly, what we find in it. How we translate it, how we read it, what we find in it. So 
Let's begin here by noticing that before we can get in and look at each one of these Beatitudes individually, we need to be clear about the meaning of this repeated word. Nine times it shows up, translated here in the ESV, blessed. Because what we think that word means will carry us in all kinds of different directions as we seek to understand what Jesus is communicating to us right from the start of the Sermon on the Mount. We, if we don't get this one right, if we don't understand this word, we're going to misunderstand not just the passage before us, but the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, New Testament scholar Scott McKnight puts it this way, the word blessed is a blessed problem. He goes on to say that our understanding of this word is a crux for interpretation of the whole passage. Get this word right, McKnight says, and the rest falls into place. Get it wrong, and the whole thing falls apart. So you want to understand the Sermon on the Mount? Then we better attempt to get our minds around the meaning of this word, translation of the word that's here rendered blessed. It's pretty easy for us to get the meaning of this word wrong because of how we English speakers tend to understand and use the word blessed. What is the opposite of a blessing? You misunderstand the Beatitudes. <laughs> I set you up for that. But I saw this a number of times last week. If you're in a crowd of people, I was up in Philadelphia a little over a week ago, and I saw it at least a couple of times. You'll notice in a crowd of people, somebody's going to have a T-shirt on that says, thankful and blessed. Or perhaps you just have to go home and open your cupboards and find the coffee mug that has that same moniker. When we say we are blessed, we are usually claiming to be the recipient of divine or supernatural favor. We mean that God, or perhaps the gods, we seem to be quickly reverting back to blatant paganism in our day. We mean that God, or the lucky stars, have had favor upon us, that have, has been good to us, that we are the lucky ones, the fortunate ones. And so we're thankful because of everything that we've been given. Blessed and thankful, thankful and blessed. And because we tend to read the word blessed, the English word blessed, as divine favor, and because of the explanation that comes after each one of these Beatitudes, we then tend to read the Beatitudes as ways in which we can assure ourselves of the divine blessing. If only we can be poor in spirit. If only we will mourn or learn to be meek, show mercy, then we will soon find ourselves wearing the t-shirt or sipping out of the thankful and blessed coffee mug. We then tend to turn these beatitudes into a set of conditions that we must first satisfy in order to put ourselves in a place where we can then receive divine favor, receive God's blessing. Here's the problem. If you're a Greek speaker, 
you know that ain't right. You've totally misunderstood the Beatitudes. You see, the problem here is mostly a problem of translation, as is so often the case for anybody who knows languages. This word, translated blessed, simply does not mean to receive divine favor. There is a word for that, and this is not the one. Uh, By the way, most English translations that I looked at translate the Beatitudes still, blessed are. We're going to see that it's not a wrong translation because it's hard for us to find a good English word. But I have to point out that the New Living Translation completely misses the boat here when it translates each of the Beatitudes, starting with the phrase, God blesses those who. So sorry to those of you who love the NLT. At times, it's really good. But this one, it's going to lead you astray. These verses have nothing to do with divine favor and who does or does not meet the conditions for receiving it. So get that out of your head. The reason that most English translations use the word blessed is because we don't have a better one to use. The old English pronunciation, blessed, tried to make the distinction that is important here. I noticed that Colby didn't read it that way, blessed are. I don't usually do that either because we don't talk like that anymore. But that was an attempt to try to make the distinction that we need to see here. Because we don't speak that way, or even if we did say blessed are, even if Colby did do that, we probably would still think we're talking about just the same thing, the idea of divine favor based upon a set of conditions. So the confusion remains for most of us. This word that is used here is not the pronouncement of a blessing upon someone. It is the observation of the state of blessedness that another is already in. Let me say that again. The word that is translated blessed here in the Beatitudes is not the pronouncement of a blessing that is upon someone. It is rather the observation of a state of blessedness that a person is already in. Uh, Jonathan Pennington points out the distinction when he says that these pronouncements are not words of power. Or it's not a benediction. Uh, They're not statements about God actively favoring someone. They are instead an exclamatory description of the state of happiness, privilege, or fortune observed by a bystander. You can tell me that I am blessed. You can say, wow, you are blessed. Or I can say that of you, but no one ever says this about themselves. So much for the t-shirt and the coffee mugs. You don't get to declare yourself blessed. Not in this word. Somebody observes that of you from a distance. Are you with me? That's the distinction. Now, at the same time, just to confuse the matter a little bit more, these statements of observation are crafted in such a way as to form an implicit invitation to consider what the best way of being in the world is and then to pursue it. So they're formed in a way to try to draw you in or to catch you, we might say. Standing at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes are to the sermon what Psalm 1 is to the Psalter. 
an imaginative call to be a certain way in the world, not just because God demands it, but simply for one's own sake, for the sake of human flourishing. Who wants to flourish? Wouldn't you rather be in a blessed state? Well, this is what the Beatitudes are crafted and and set up to draw you in to pursue. We could translate the Beatitudes, happy are those who, so long as we recognize that the quest for flourishing often requires happiness to be set aside in the moment for long-term satisfaction. You know that. Everybody knows that. If you want to flourish, everyone knows you can't just do what feels good or makes you happy in the moment. Denying yourself is often the key to flourishing, whether we are talking about food or feelings or even justifiable frustration. Just because I would feel happy right now if I ate that Snickers bar or told my coworker off or my boss doesn't mean that I ought to do it if what I'm really after is human flourishing, if what I'm really seeking is happiness. The Beatitudes then are basically a form of wisdom literature. And Jesus opens the Sermon on the Mount by alerting us to the presence of two possible paths you can follow. Just like Psalm 1 does in the Psalter, there's two possibilities here. There's two paths we can walk down. This is how the Sermon on the Mount opens. And if you look at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it's also how it concludes. There's two paths. There's the wise path. There's the foolish path. And don't you want to flourish? Then let's get on the wise path. So as Jesus here ascends a mountain, echoing Moses' ascent to the top of Sinai, and then as he begins to teach his disciples, echoing God's giving of the Torah to Moses. So here he is signaling, signaling to all who will hear that Jesus has come to show us the true path of human flourishing. This is how we have to read the Beatitudes and the entire Sermon on the Mount. It's also how we need to learn to read Jesus and the entire scope of his mission in the world. If we think that Jesus came primarily to solve the problem of how we sinners can be granted access to heaven when we die, then we will really struggle to know what to do with the Beatitudes and the entire Sermon on the Mount. This, by the way, is a particular problem for our kind of Christians, for us Protestants. We are so afraid, rightfully so, we are so afraid of the legalism of earning our salvation that we often find ourselves holding exhortations or even invitations to wise living like a hot potato that we need to get out of our hands as soon as possible, make excuses for. Well, it doesn't really mean that. I know, I feel that pressure. We talked about this some last week. This is one of the ways many Christians find an excuse for evading the Sermon on the Mount and its call to live wisely. We read the Beatitudes as ways of obtaining divine favor, right? 
And then we cover them with our theological precision of salvation by grace alone. And the next thing you know, we've just found a cute way to dismiss the entire Sermon on the Mount. Well done or not. So let's back up for a minute here and remind ourselves about the purpose of redemption. How do we read Jesus? How should we read the Sermon on the Mount? What is it that Jesus came to do? Because if we don't get this straight, we will continue to miss the importance and the joyful invitation of the Beatitudes. If we keep it before us, then we'll see the way to read them rightly. So on our way to Philadelphia, I sat on the plane next to a guy who, once he sat down next to me, immediately popped open a massive ESV study Bible. Game time. Wasn't getting any sleep on this flight. Easy enough to get in a conversation, right? I found out that this young man was coming back to his faith. And as we began to talk, he said, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. He said, so who goes to heaven? Is it our choice or does God make the choice? Ah, yes. The old Calvinism question. It's not irrelevant. I mean, why is it that some people find Jesus compelling while others don't, all while looking at the same evidence? That's a, that's a great question. Is it just that I choose to believe and others do not? Is it just my choice? If it's all my choice, then we who have chosen rightly, said with your nose slightly tilted in the air, can feel pretty good about ourselves, can't we? We made the right choice. We were wise. We're the good people. We can become self-righteous and condescending. But if it's God's choice, every Calvinist knows this raises endless questions about God and his goodness. So look, no Calvinist wants God's goodness to be questioned or to make human choice irrelevant or robotic. And no Arminian wants Christians to become self-righteous and stuck up. No matter how you answer the question, there's going to be mystery that remains. At some point, perhaps we can, should consider if there's a better place to start the conversation, a better question to be asked, a better conversation around the purpose of redemption, who Jesus is and what he came to do, and what, in fact, redemption is all about. And the Beatitudes point the way. You see, if indeed we read the Beatitudes not as the kinds of people that we must be so that God will bless us and take us to heaven, now you know better, can't read them that way, and you read them instead as Jesus' observation of the kinds of people who are actually and already flourishing, then we find Jesus' own teaching takes us to look at him and the whole mission he came to accomplish quite differently. Jesus apparently did not come to make sure that we do not descend into hell by teaching us instead how we can ascend into heaven. No, he came to stop our descent into hellish dehumanization, eternal hell, 
by showing us the path toward the full humanization of flourishing that we were created to possess right from the beginning. Speaking of the beginning, consider just the way the Bible begins. This is what I told my new friend on the plane. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right there, at the start, we see a God who is the creator of all there is. And God's approval and delight in all that he has made is clear throughout Genesis 1 in the repeated phrase, and God saw that it was good. What a tragedy it would be then for Christians to have a reputation of preaching a gospel that basically says of God's created universe, it is not a good to be enjoyed, but an evil that we need to escape. What a tragedy. And if the world and the universe that God made are good, then we ought to see it that way and treat it that way and do all that we can to see that the world flourishes the way God intends for it to flourish. The God who makes apple trees delights to see them flourish with apples, enough to satisfy your hunger and your neighbors. And so should we. We should take the same delight. Just remind, I put apples in here because... My wife and I go on this walk through our neighborhood, and about a month ago, there was an apple tree along the path full of apples. And the next day, they're still full of apples, and the next day, they're still full of apples. And I thought, somebody needs to delight in these apples. And it kind of looked like nobody lived there, so... May God forgive me if this is sin, but I delighted in a few apples on the path. Now, of course we know that the reason things do not always flourish is because there is a problem. It's the problem of sin and evil that have brought corruption, frustration, and death into God's world of delights. And here's the thing. The Bible tells us of the clear connection between sin and the lack of flourishing in his creation. The Bible's not mysterious about this. The reason why there is frustration, the reason why things don't always flourish is because there is sin. Now, it's not always a one-to-one connection. Be careful, theologians of thinking that you can see the exact correspondence. And neither does it mean that if your flowers die, it's because you have sinned, unless you are prepared to say that your failure to water those flowers over the past week is sin. And perhaps that's what you should call it. Sin is not just doing morally wrong things that God does not approve of. It also includes the moral culpability of not doing the good things that God created us to do. So if you plant the flowers, I think God expects you to water them. And when the Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, it does not mean 
This is how we've taken it for so long. It does not mean that we have failed to live up to the impossibly high demands of God. The verb in Romans 3.23, to fall short, means that we lack something. That there is some deficiency within us. And what we lack, the text says, is the glory of God, which is just another way that the Bible refers to the special status with which God created human beings. Because of sin, we all have become less human, subhuman. We fail to exhibit that being like God for which we were created. That's what sin is. And if that is the problem, and we can see it that way, then we can also see the problem that Jesus came to solve. We're going to see it differently now, won't we? There's, of course, several ways of saying it. The Bible is a big book with lots of metaphors, lots of ways to describing it. But here's one that we just don't say often enough. Jesus came, and the purpose of redemption was to restore your humanity. Yeah? Jesus came to make you, I'm saying you, all of you, the full human beings God wants you to be. The redemption that Jesus has come to complete guarantees the restoration of our humanity and our rightful enjoyment of God's world. Do you see Jesus that way? Do you preach Jesus that way? I began to speak to my friend on the plane this way, and pretty soon he said, that gives me chills. Maybe it would do us good if it did the same for us. So when Jesus begins here to observe blessedness here in the Beatitudes, he is saying, now would you look at that apple tree? Would you just take a look? Look right there. There we see full humanity. That's the way it is supposed to be, Jesus is saying. There are the people who ought to be wearing the T-shirts and drinking out of the coffee mugs. This is real human flourishing. Now, take a look. Because when you see what Jesus is looking at, you're going to be shocked, aren't you? Are you? Are you reading the Beatitudes here? Jesus is saying, let's look at where flourishing is. And when you look, look what you see. It, what you see is, to our eyes, those who are profoundly not flourishing. How can Jesus say that it is the poor and those who mourn, the hungry and the thirsty, as well as the persecuted, are the flourishing ones? Jesus some kind of a sadist here? No. He's a savior. Commentators will tell you that there is a key Old Testament text to the Beatitudes. Jesus doesn't just make these up on the fly. He knows his Old Testament. He knows the story. And the key Old Testament text that lies behind the Beatitudes is Isaiah 61. It's a passage that one day the Bible tells us Jesus went into a synagogue and opened up the scroll and began to read these words. 
Let me read them in your hearing and note the connection to the Beatitudes. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then, according to Luke chapter 4, verse 21, Jesus closed the scroll. Everybody's looking at him, and he said these words. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I just got chills. If we believe Jesus, then we have to believe what he accomplished for us was the fulfillment of God's long-awaited promise to finally deliver us from the dehumanization of our sinfulness. He came to set the poor and the oppressed free so they can flourish like they were always meant to. So if that is who you are this morning, if you are counted among that number, then because of Jesus, you are the flourishing ones. If you are those who seem to flourish without him, you don't need to be set free. You're already free. You're not poor. You're rich. Got there by your own hard work. then you don't really need a savior, do you? You're already flourishing. So for you, take warning. You have found a path to flourishing that has actually come at the expense of someone else. You are indicted in the Beatitudes of crimes against humanity. You have met your end in Jesus of Nazareth. You have had your reward, and it's not going to last. But there is still good news for everyone who will hear. Notice the treasures of the Beatitudes. Each one of them ends with a reversal of fortunes for the ones that Jesus came to save. Once more, we know better than to read the Beatitudes as essentially divine commands. Don't, don't do that. Don't make that mistake. Find a different way to translate it if you have to. These are not conditions that you have to get yourself into so that now, finally, God can bless you. What we find in the Beatitudes, listen, is not a secret knowledge on how to position yourself to get a blessing from God. Oh. Stop it. Do not read the Beatitudes like that. 
If you do, I can guarantee you, you will end up exasperated by your inability to get there. You're going to look at your circumstances and conclude, well, guess I'm not poor enough. I don't mourn enough. I'm not meek or merciful or pure enough. And that's why God is not blessing me. That's why I'm not happy. Nor do we read these Beatitudes as simple words of encouragement to those who are actually unhappy. Just hold on. Things are going to eventually work out. I hope you can read these Beatitudes and take them seriously without feeling condemned by your failure to be good enough or being left with a feeling that there is no hope for you in your sadness. As if Jesus has just come along to pat you on the back and say, quite unhelpfully, everything's going to turn out all right. Too many well-meaning Christians turn to Bible texts and do that sort of thing, right? Romans 8, 28, thrown around as if it's just a pat on the back. It's a complete misunderstanding of the glory of what Jesus came to do. The Beatitudes are not empty words. They're not. There is rich treasure here, but as one commentator calls it, it's black gold. (laughs) It is divine gold of priceless worth, but it appears to be only darkness. Here's how we can see the treasure. The way to see it is you have to see the presence of the kingdom of God. This is the gold that is found explicitly at the end of verse 3 and also in verse 10. And yet all of the Beatitudes end essentially with invitations into the reality, the celebration of the kingdom of God. So to see the gold here, you have to see the kingdom of God that has already broken in on this present evil age through Jesus of Nazareth. This is the only way that you're going to see the black gold, the treasure of the Beatitudes. You have to have a kingdom theology. You have to see that Jesus has already done something dramatic. So many Christians remain ignorant of this reality, thinking that Christianity is all about a private religion. The answer to questions that we ask about things that Nobody can see. The Jewish hope was that that Jesus insists that he came to fulfill. Is the arrival of the kingdom of God on earth, which has everything to do with the world that we see and our place in it as his image bearers. You didn't hear that, so I'm going to say it again. The Jewish hope that Jesus insists that he came to fulfill, that he came to inaugurate, has everything to do with the world that we see and our place in it as his image bearers. What the first Christians said was different about the kingdom of God was not that it had nothing to do with Rome and real history but that the kingdom that Israel had been looking for was based upon Jesus rather than a restoration of Jewish national and ethnic primacy. Christians got to get this straight, and we'll get our Bible straight. 
So if you want to see the treasure of the kingdom, you have to see it through Jesus, and you have to steadfastly resist seeing it any other way. When we read the Beatitudes, then we have to read them through Jesus and the present reality of the kingdom of God that has already dawned upon this present evil age. This will point us then the way toward the true flourishing that the Beatitudes invite us into. So, some of you are saying, are we ever going to get to the nine Beatitudes? This sermon's going to disappoint you. But next week, we're going to circle back in, maybe. But here's a taste. When Jesus says, blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit, we will not take this to mean that poverty is a good in itself. If you're poor because you are lazy or just don't know how to handle money, don't turn to Matthew 5, 3 as your life verse. Get somebody to help you. Get some discipline and teach you how to handle money. Not all of us know how to do that very well. Jesus came to deliver the poor who are poor in spirit. That is, they are in their state of poverty because they're oppressed. And those who hope in God to set them free will find in Jesus the assurance that God has come to do just that. God is dealing with the oppressors. God is on the side of the poor who are in that state because they've been oppressed. You can see then how the Beatitudes will work if you don't find yourself poor because you've been oppressed. If you can't relate to that, that's not your story, then what's the good news for you? Well, then the Beatitudes invite you. They call you in to be on the side of the poor to care about their plight, and like God, to do something about it, even if all you can do is put a hand on a shoulder and pray. All of the Beatitudes, by the way, work this way. All of them. And they are this practical, and they are this hopeful. Those who mourn are those who are deeply concerned about the brokenness they see around them. And they're moved to action. We can't just stand by and see this brokenness. We gotta do something about it. If we walked in here this morning and the ceiling had caved in, what would we do? <laughs> Lots of things, but we would act. You see brokenness, it's a call to action. Even if that action looks different according to our various gifts and capacities, not everybody would be doing the same thing. Somebody's on the phone. Somebody's lifting the heavy stuff. And maybe some of you are just sitting here praying. It all matters. Because the hope that sustains us is not that we always see victory in every attempt to work for kingdom healing. But the hope that sustains us is because we know that in Jesus, all brokenness will be resolved. If not now, then certainly when he comes in the resurrection.
But what if God wants to give us a taste of it now? This week, I was talking to one of my neighbors who is kind of a hero in the neighborhood. Lots of you know him, even even if you've not met him. He's well known because of his work with the homeless. He's a believer, but he's also a retired Marine. Just keep that in mind when you talk to him. And he brings both his love for Jesus and his training as a Marine to this ever-present problem in our city. The problem is not just the ugliness that we all see. You drive by under the bridge over here, I-44 and Penn, you're like, oh, I don't think the world is supposed to be like that. I think that's right. Pretty sure God agrees with you. But the problem is not that. The problem, as my neighbor sees, is the fact that two homeless people in the last couple of weeks have died. So he has to do something about it. My neighbor has gotten, uh, he knows all the names of all the homeless around. He knows them all. He talks to them all. He knows their story. Knows every one of them. If you say, how about, he knows them. I guarantee you he does. And one of them, I drive by all the time. American flag right there on I-44 and Penn. That's, that's a caveman. Uh, my neighbor has helped him get housed on at least two different occasions. My neighbor is moved to action. He gets his hands dirty. He's involved. And they all know that he cares. But he doesn't just help some homeless people get into homes. He also, as he found it, as I heard this week, he literally throws others out of homes. There was a drug house just right down the street full of people who were not supposed to be there. House got sold, new owner, Mike, I wasn't going to say his name, uh, called, up, called up the new owner and said, you got a lot of people living in there who shouldn't be there. But I can help you solve this problem. What do we do? He said, well, I've been warning them for months that their end is near. That they better get out or they're going to be kicked out. And they don't believe me, but here's how it's going to happen. Show up, this time, this place, you got to have lots of plywood, nails, lots of people. We're going to clean it out quickly, fast. So he went back to the house. The new owner showed up. And he walked in and he said, Game time, boys. Your time is up. I've been warning you. And he literally threw them out of the house, grabbed them, threw them out. They said, you can't do that. We're calling the police. He said, call them. And within a few hours, they had everything cleared out. The whole house boarded up. And the next day, the neighbors around called them and said, what happened? It was the quietest our neighborhood has been in years. Now, I didn't tell you that story without telling you the first part about my neighbor, right? This is the challenge that we have before us, but here's my challenge to you. I want us, oh, 
I want us so badly to be a church that lives and worships, that hopes and dreams, that rests and works in the reality of the kingdom of God. Are you ready? Are you ready to trust Jesus? Believe in his kingdom reality? See the brokenness around you? Around us? What has God called us to do for the sake of human flourishing? This is the invitation. This is the welcome of the Beatitudes. This is the catch. And I hope you're caught. Let's pray. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, O God. In Jesus Christ, we find the gentle touch of the poor and the oppressed, the marginalized, the wounded, the hurt. God is on the side of the oppressed. God sees the evil that is done, and he will, he will evict the oppressors. He will throw them out. And those of us who are called to be his people are called to realize that in Jesus, and only in Jesus, the image of God, the glory of God, is being restored. So what are we here to do? Well, it's what we sang about earlier. I want to build my life upon your love. It is a firm foundation. I want to trust in you. If I don't trust in you, Jesus, then my attempts to bring about flourishing will only bring more oppression and injustice. It might benefit me and my friends, but it will hurt my neighbors. That's not the way of the kingdom. Hmm. Oh, Lord Jesus, by your spirit, would you please reshape, remake us as a church to be the people of God that in Christ you've made us to be. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.